I think the way I see things in, in being older, seeing a lot of lawsuits, the majority of patients just want to be taken care of. They understand that adverse events happen to patients. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Today on the Neurosurgery Podcast, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Jim Harrop. I've known Jim, I think we first met uh, on a boat in England when we were visiting um, Sir Alan Crocker, and that was uh, almost 20 years ago. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Mike, thanks for having me. John Paul, nice to meet you. I'm excited about today. Great, great. Now, Jim is uh, the Director of Neurospine at the uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, University, which is linked to the Rothman Institute, one of the most storied uh, spine institutions in this country, Ortho Plus Neuro. And, you know, we, we wanted to ask Jim to talk about this issue of neurosurgeons and complications, meaning surgical complications. And it's not to suggest Jim has, you know, any more or less complications than anybody else. But Jim, you've always been well known as a person who's very honest, forthright, and you speak your mind, correct? I believe so, yes. <laughs> it's Philly style, right? Um, so let's start off with this sort of concept of of complications with neurosurgeons. So I guess one of the things about us is that when we get complications, it can be really quite serious, right? It's more than than maybe just like a wound infection or something like that. And so there's this sort of specter or fear uh, or anxiety over complications. And and when you get a complication, there's a lot of emotion tied to it as well. So can you sort of walk me through, like you're, you're doing a case, it could be any kind of case, I know you do mostly spine, and then um, somebody tears the dura, right? That's not a huge complication. What goes through your mind immediately in that situation? So, so I'm gonna actually take you back a little bit, Mike. And, and you asked me, I actually wrote a lot about complications when I first started in medicine. It was really because I was one of the junior people and they uh, wanted someone to talk about complications, but no one wanted to do it. And so I'm going to tell you my philosophy as I've gone through. And I've sort of changed my the way I view it. It's, it's not a complication in the sense that complication implies that you were doing something and you complicated it, which is out of the norm of doing that procedure. So I've switched and I actually refer to them as adverse events. Because I think when you're going through complications or adverse events, you got to step back and talk about your patients, when you see them in the office and decide, am I going to go to surgery or I'm not going to go to surgery? I'm going to do a different route. And so when you're making that decision, you're going through weighing all the risk you know to surgery versus all the risk you know of not doing surgery. And so when you have an adverse event, I think you explained it to the patient and that's a step backwards. It doesn't hurt you in the long journey. Most of our adverse events or complications are fortunately small and correctable. Now, Dr. Harrop, as I listen to you describe these adverse events, my initial reaction is thinking, drawing kind of a parallel to the idea of sins of omission versus sins of commission. I wonder what is more frequent 
in your knowledge throughout the field, um, complications or adverse events where something bad happens that shouldn't or something that should happen does not? I think that's, that is a great way to say things. And I think when you, when you look at complications and you go back, and I'll make it a, di- a little bit different, was it a complication because it was an inherent problem with the patient or was it an inherent problem with your planning for the patient? And I think it's a much more serious problem when you as a surgeon make a technical error on how to approach something. You know, should you have done this from the anterior versus the posterior? And, and to me, this is one of the reasons why M&M, looking at our complications, understanding our complications and adverse events are, are so important. It's, it's much more important to have a, an adverse event and communicate it to everyone else so, so we learn from it and other people can avoid it. And so just to follow up on that, from the surgeon's perspective, um, I guess drawing from personal experience or through the course of your career as you've talked to other practicing surgeons across the country, what do you think is harder to process as the surgeon responsible for your patient when you miss something or when you unintentionally do something even minor that could be harmful? I think from surgeons, and which you're talking about which is worse for the surgeon, I think it's it's worse when we miss something. Um, mm-hmm. I know this is going to shock you guys, but most neurosurgeons are a little egotistical. And so <laughs> knowing something bad happened because you didn't fully understand it or didn't prepare well enough, I think really hurts us intellectually and emotionally much less than if you, as Mike talked about earlier, create a hole in the dura because the patient didn't have dura. But Jim, I mean, I think, you know, you're, and you were telling me about this before our recording that you're studying quality improvement. I think that's a very good perspective, but to be perfectly honest, right? Neurosurgeons pay, I think the highest malpractice of any medical specialty, right? And uh, we are also one of the most likely to be sued. I think on average, you get one lawsuit every two and a half years or something like that, right? And so it's a common problem that's very expensive, not only financially, but also in terms of human impact, if you will, right? So when we're engaged in our surgical interventions, and it's right to talk about the sins of commission, as JP said, as well as omission, but of course, what sticks out in people's mind is the acts of uh, commission. That means you do something, you take a person to the ER, and there's some sort of untoward or, um, or uh, unanticipated or you know unfortunate event, whether it's your fault or not, right? And then when that happens, I mean, the first time I got a complication and I thought I was going to get sued, I, I was actually, I mean, I was emotionally a little bit terrified, you know? It was very difficult for me. I didn't get sued and the patient recovered, but it was, it certainly, um, it certainly caused me to take, take pause and reexamine how I do things, if you will. Um, to walk us through that because we have kind of, we have listeners of all different stripes. Some are young, some are in training, some are experienced. Right? How does Jim Harrop look at this paradigm? So I guess the first thing I'm going to try to take you away from is this belief that uh, every adverse event ends up in a lawsuit, and I think that's totally a misconception. The great majority of adverse events or complications actually do not end up in lawsuits. And as I reflect back on, on, on the lawsuits I have, I can tell you most of them are about one thing, and that's about money. And it has nothing to do about patient care or any of the reactions. And I think we as neurosurgeons actually see so many lawsuits because 
uh, unfortunately, patients with neurologic deficits tend to have a large amount of uh, need for cash reserves because of injuries and supports. And so there's a big uh, legal pool at the at the end. So I, I think, first of all, you, you got to get away from, from that. The second thing you have to acknowledge, you're going to have complications. Every single person has a complication. I think we did a series once and we had 80% of the patients had what some conception or perception of themselves through their course that they had a adverse event. And so I think, you know, all adverse events aren't the same, but they happen and acknowledging them, uh, bring them to the forefront and communicating with your patient is much more likely to save you away from a lawsuit than pretending you don't have complications. And so I wonder, I mean, obviously at this stage in my career, I'm very junior. I'm just learning the art and practice of neurosurgery myself, but I am also fairly recently out of medical school. And when I was in school, I remember an off-quoted statistic um, that they kind of hammered into us was that physicians who were sued by patients, it was never, or, or I should say most frequently, it was not about an actual complication, an actual error being made. But the strongest predictor of a lawsuit going to court was poor relationship or poor communication between the physician and patient. Um, I wonder, um, either Dr. Harrop or Dr. Wang, in your experience in talking with your friends and colleagues, does that ring true within neurosurgery in particular? Because um, I, I know these stats that I was quoted was across all specialties of medicine. And I wonder, with the unique relationship neurosurgeons have with their patients, as you, and as you said, Dr. Harrop, the unique needs that our patients have, if that quality of physician-patient relationship is still the strongest determinant of what goes to court, or if those legal and, and medical burdens that uh, patients with neurologic deficit may overcome that rapport that we could have with people. I mean, and I'll answer this, and Mike, you can uh, add on. I think the way I see things in, in being older, seeing a lot of lawsuits, patients the majority of patients just want to be taken care of. They understand that adverse events happen to patients. We did a study many years ago, and we looked at what a patient considers a adverse event. And it was very interesting, uh, just to give you the, the lack of knowledge between everyone. Patients do not perceive an infection as a complication. It's, it's, we think of it as everyone, time you get a surgical site infection, 100% chance of a uh, whatever lawsuit or anything. Multiple studies with a gentleman named Grob that did in European showed spine surgeons that get infections, patients don't consider it. They consider that part of playing the pay to business. We then had the same series of, of vignettes, and we had a patients that got occipital cervical fusions and lost range of motion from their cervical spine. That is the goal of the operation. And the majority of patients thought that was a complication because they lost range of motion of their spine. So I think we need to do more on explaining what our procedures are, what are the goals of the procedures, and it will, you know, it always helps you in, in the long term. I'll give you one last example, which I think has greatly helped in my life. When you do a cervical laminectomy, depending on your literature, five to twelve percent of patients will end up with C5 palsies. It is a horrible adverse event. You will do nothing wrong, but the patient will get it, or we don't know what you're doing wrong at this. It's interesting. I've gone through, and now I talk to my patients preoperatively about exactly that complication or that adverse event. And when patients get it, they're so appreciative 
because they understand what it is. They understand the natural history. And I don't think any of them have gotten mad at me versus the other way around when something would happen, there would be poor communication because when, when things happen and there's an adverse event, a lot of physicians run away. And I'll tell you, I, and I know Mike Wang is the exact opposite. I run to my patients because you might get sued, you might not, but your job's to be a doctor and support them as much as you can. Yeah, Jim, those are really great pointers in terms of how one manages this. And we're going to have to have you uh, on during our medicine and law uh, miniseries, which is coming up. You know, I, I do want to come back to this point, though. I think it's an important one of, of how one deals emotionally with this problem. And, you know, of course, the, the primary consideration is always the patient, right? But we've all known surgeons maybe because they're so terrified of complications, they can never get past their learning curve or their, I, I want to say, even afraid to do the right operation sometimes, right? I mean, we see that. And and how does one emotionally, you know, you're deal with that. You're, you're a very uh, strong person in terms of personality and force of will. So I can't ever see you in that position, but I'm sure you've seen maybe trainees or surgeons around you who, who are struggling with that, right? Maybe struggling with it morally or struggling with it emotionally or psychologically. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, I, I'll tell you that um, those compliments, I don't know if they're good things or bad things, but the, I don't know if they're compliments, I guess, is uh, when you get a lawsuit, it stinks. I mean, there's there's no one out there that says, okay, this is nothing. Well, that's wrong. There are some uh, sociopaths out there that sort of, it's not an issue. But no one wants to be told that they're bad. And when you read the complaints against you, everything in the world's wrong. And I think what I've learned over the years, and this is going to sound a little bit uh, bad, it really isn't about the patient. It's usually about money. And that's really what both sides are fighting about. And I don't think you can, you know, you should take it bad because that's why you're a doctor and you're trying to take care of patients and it should hurt a little bit. Otherwise, you have no empathy and we all have empathy. I think that the the more important thing is, is A, do everything you can for the patient, try to support them and, you know, talk to some of your colleagues and mentors because you said this stat earlier, every neurosurgeon I know has been sued. Some of them won't talk about it or, or acknowledge it, but they'll try to help get you through it. And, you know, there are resources out there, but I really think talking to your friends, going through it, reflecting back on what the case was, learn from it, is your best hope of sort of really getting on with your life and, and trying to help another person. Now, again, I have to speak from a place of um, literal ignorance about how these things are handled and, and what the experience is like, but also from a position of great concern because I'm, I'm looking forward to my own career and, and being in, uh, in your position in the future. And so having kind of thought about what it's like for the surgeon who has adverse events or has complications and deals with that internally and, and deals with interacting with the patient about it, how do you gentlemen deal with uh, a scenario where you see colleagues, you see other surgeons in the field who may have a higher complication rate than is the norm, and perhaps, as would happen in any profession, you may be concerned about your colleague. Is there any kind of um, polite or professional way that you can approach a colleague and try to delicately raise the topic for conversation? Um, or, or are these conversations simply taboo? And I, you know, I, I would, I would raise this question in light of 
last year's Dr. Death podcast and the story that kind of swept the nation where this surgeon was out having complications and was not challenged. These were not brought to light until later um, with his professional community not maybe approaching him and saying, hey, do you need some help? I guess I'll take that first, Mike. And I think the first thing you got to you got to do is a acknowledge these things happen, and the second thing you need to do is be transparent. So at, at Jefferson, we've really tried to be extremely transparent, and everything's a complication, and talk about it um, because we've now actually gone one step further. And, and I don't know if you know what a root cause analysis is. We have the chief residents each each month uh, in each division pull out a case and do a root cause analysis and try to track down, find out what variables were uh, key to that problem. And I'm sort of going to go off of my quality improvement hat for one second here. It's interesting. If you look at a medical disaster or a bad case, usually there's about 10 to 13 errors that happened along that patient's course that caused that medical disaster to happen. And it's interesting because if you go to the aviation industry, that's about how many errors have to take place for a plane to crash. And so I think going back to the quality improvement world is you need to be transparent, you need to acknowledge it, and you need to talk about it. And, and no mistake is acceptable. We got to keep on trying. And I'm going to have one, and I'm going to give you one last example, which I, I think is, again, completely changed my life. When Mike and I were interns, the ICU line infection rate was astronomical. I bet you in the ICU it was up to 6%. Um, then some of the guys from Hopkins did a, did a study, and a surgical site infection rate from a central line is almost a never event now. They're so rare because people took something, studied it, examined it, and almost made something extinct, which is a great thing. Well, you know, Jim, I, I'm, I was going to bring this up all along and I'm, you just brought it up right there. So this concept of the never event. And I remember it was brought up at M&M once and I just, I flipped out because I'm like this concept of the, the Jayco never event, like I get it, right? Like it shouldn't happen. But the reality is if it does happen, why is it a never event, right? In other words, I think the optics on that term uh, aren't, aren't ideal, right? I mean, it's sure, one of those sure. things where it just makes me bristle. Like these things happen. It's not anybody's fault. There are statistics involved. You can do everything right every time and they still happen. So why is it a never event, right? So I, I'm, I'm going to try to change the way you think about the world. It's a never event because it never should happen. And if it happened, that means something went wrong, meaning that there is something you can trace back and do better. Because once you acknowledge it can happen, Mike, then it's acceptable. And so I, I, I hear what you're saying. I somewhat agree with the word and everything because we're dealing with humans and things happen. But I really think you have to look at it as, I don't want this event to ever happen. Therefore, it's a never event. It's sort of like the null hypothesis in stats. I mean, to me, that's kind of, and I don't want to push too too hard against it, but it's kind of like saying, you know, I don't ever want to see bad grades. I don't want to see anybody starve. I don't want everybody in a car accident. But the fact that they do happen reflect a sort of reality of life. And I'm not willing to accept that, right? Because by definition, complications are undesirable. But there's something about saying that these things should never happen that suggests that you would it would be possible to create a world like that. And to me, 
um, I don't know that that's truly possible. But you know, t- tell me I'm wrong. Tell convince me otherwise. Okay, uh, you're a uh, you're a skeptic, and I love it. So 50 years ago, there was a little field called aviation, and guess what? They're having plane crashes all the time, and so guess what? they made airplane crashes never events. And so when a plane crashes, they go through crazy steps. I don't know if you've ever seen the FAA rebuild planes to try to understand why it happened. And again, Mike, you're somewhat right about different things because there's an economic value on everything. Um, And so I think you got to look at, you know, a CSF leak versus a death. But a plane crash is the perfect example when you throw that to medicine and go, we need to do a lot better. And I gave you the analogy I mean, urinary tract infections haven't really been happening. Uh, our, I'll give you our, our own example at Jefferson. Our surgical site infections for posterior lumbar fusions were 6%. We actually went down and did a huge analysis, broke down everything, made this huge evidence-based uh, protocol, got everyone to do together. And our infection rate's down about less than 1% now. Now, we do a lot of trauma and other things. Will it ever be zero? Probably not, but I'm going to keep on trying to push that line lower and lower. I love it. We debate all the time on the stage, so let's debate a little on the podcast. So the aviation aviation analogy is a good one, but it's another one I absolutely hate because, look, planes are designed, routes are designed. It's kind of like saying, you know, when you're fixing a car, it's like fixing the body, and it's really nothing like it. I mean, these problems we deal with, you know, we're going in to fix a problem, right? So it's different from taking a uh, airplane flight from A to B. I mean, we're we're presented with a problem first. We're not saying take a normal gallbladder out, right? We're talking about disease states. We're talking about a very complicated scenario where every single human being is different. And so I agree with you with the idea that like, you know, it's like brain attack, right? You should always try to get this treated within six minutes, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, the aviation analogy is not the same thing as taking someone to surgery. You know, I, to me, it's not. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe push back on that. Tell me what you think about that. All right. So I'll throw out, how about nuclear reactors is another example. And how about, here's a great one. Any industry in the world strives for Six Sigma. That's one in a million errors. Yeah, See, sure. I know about we're Six not Sigma. Even to well, two, yeah. We're not even to Two Sigma because we're our infection rates are over 1%. So I'm not trying to make us six sigma, I'm trying to make us three sigma. And so our industry is so far behind the rest of the world. And I'm going to throw something else at you, Mike. It's a little unusual why everyone does everything different. Why do you need to do degenerative spondylolisthesis is a pretty common problem in America. Why is there 8000 different ways to do it with different approaches? Shouldn't we have an understanding at this point that says, this is the best way to do it. Everyone do it this way. And you can't because surgeons are so individualistic and have their own egos and their way to do it, that we need to be much more homogeneous in the way we approach problems. And I know we're sort of getting off track and I apologize for that. No, no, it's good because because we have another episode on are we going to be replaced by robots, and it's it's perfect for that as well to to plug that. But I, you know, I think I think it's 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 a very enlightening concept. But I I really you know when I when I think about this, I think about it that look, like you said, everybody gets complications, everybody gets sued. You know, if it were that simple, you know, we've interviewed some of the best surgeons in the world, 
and they all have complications, right? If it really was possible to get the Six Sigma, right? I mean, wouldn't have wouldn't somebody have gotten there? Wouldn't somebody have achieved that by now? Some super surgeon, some uber surgeon? Well, I think and that's a great question. I think the problem is we as surgeons have not taken the approach that we need to. Uh, and I'll tell you what we're, we're doing at Jefferson, what we're trying to do it. We're standardizing everything. We're measuring everything. Uh, you know, OR cases, I actually just got all the OR instrumentations down to two sets for ACDFs. So we're using the same tools, um, trying to be much more efficient uh, with, with the nursing, getting consistent teams. There's a lot of things we can do which are low, you know, low hanging fruit that we can make the world more quality, efficient and safer for our patients. So, Jim, I totally get it. Like, you know, we know that surgery as we practice it today, in some ways, is going to be viewed in the future as sort of barbaric, right? Like we're going to constantly strive, as you said, to, to improve the quality and uh, outcomes of our surgeries. There's no question about that. But I think all surgeons do that. And I, I'm just going to push back one more time on that aviation analogy, because I'm so tired of hearing it. And here it goes something like this, right? You know, you get on the plane, um, you take off, you're up in the air and the captain comes on the PA, right? And what do they say? They're like, this is a beautiful day for flying. We got 10 mile visibility. There's very little, uh, there's very little weather. You've got an excellent flight crew, right? The, 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 the plane is full of fuel, right? Everything's perfect, right? That's what the captain says. And if there's any little hint of a thing, it's usually like this PA announcement before you take off. I'm sorry, but um, the laboratory isn't flushing properly, so we're going to have to wait another five hours. Please disembark, and we're probably going to cancel the flight, right? So in surgery, we're presented with, with these situations where it's like the, the worse the situation, the more necessary it is. And this is really something that I think is fundamental to what we do. And, you know, I get very angry when the residents or fellows come in the room. They're like, oh, Dr. Wang, you know, that's kind of a tight disc space or there's a lot of stenosis. Like, I don't know. And, and my answer is, what are you training to be a criminal? Like, it, it's like saying, no, but, but there's a tumor there inside the skull. Like, what are you like? I don't get it. Can't we just operate on a normal brain on a 22 year old who has no symptoms? And so I think that Part of that aviation analogy is like you create the perfect conditions and you minimize the accidents and they still happen sometimes. But in surgery, the patient arrives to you already in some ways abnormal or destroyed or, you know, for example, like in, in spine, by the time people come to our surgeries, you know, they've maxed out all conservative therapies. They're often financially distraught. They're physically deconditioned, which has a lot of implications. They've gained weight. Their social support system is gone. They're addicted to opiates. And you're presented with this. And so I would say that, you know, I, I like the analogy if you were cherry picking patients, but the best doctors, I think, treat people who have real diseases and real problems. And, you know, look, 12, 14 millimeter, a uh, 12, 14 millimeter centimeter meningioma, right? Uh, six millimeter spinal stenosis. I mean, those are the people who really need surgery. And those are also the riskiest cases. And I would say you also have to consider what outcome you're measuring when you talk about if you're achieving that six sigma level of, of accuracy. I mean, if, if you, if your outcome is any complication whatsoever, and the way you're defining complication is including things that will happen with some measured frequency within case, like perhaps an incidental durotomy, then you'll likely never achieve that level of perfection. But if, you're, if your outcome, on the other hand, is death on the table, 
that happens fewer than in one in a million cases. So depending on how we define these adverse events or define complications, that will obviously impact what degree of accuracy or performance you can get at the back end. And, I'll, and I, I applaud that. And, I, and I'll, everyone should go out to their hospital and there's a couple things you should look at. The Joint Commission and um, uh, the government measures, uh, CMS, measures something called PSIs, Patient Safety Indexes. They change them every year, but you really should look at those because those are things that we should have control on and do better. Uh, such things as urinary tract infections, surgical site infections, DVTs, um, but they're all different areas that you can you should get a hold of your hospital and say, well, how do I do? How, just simply, there's a guy, Michael Porter, he's a guy from Harvard Business Review, who's written extensively on this. And it's interesting, just the fact of measuring things makes us do better from a quality and point, a quality point of view. Jim, I love that. You've taken us through a big journey on this, and, and uh, we will aspire to do better, as we always do here on the Neurosurgery Podcast, and I encourage our listeners to do the same. I want to close with a, a very famous quote. Uh, Marty Weiss, uh, our former chairman, used to say this all the time, and I, I don't think he came up with it, but he used to say there's only three kinds of neurosurgeons that don't get complications. There's people who don't operate, people who are too stupid to recognize when they have a complication, and liars. And Jim, thank you for coming on the podcast and giving your very honest appraisal. We will have to have you back again in our mini series on medicine and the law. John Paul, Mike, it was a great honor and thank you very much.